Well, first, let me just begin by saying how appreciative I am to Brian Faru for filling in the pulpit. Why, uh, Brian Milbian and I were both at a pastor's conference the week before, and it didn't give us time to be able to prepare a sermon adequately for you. And brother, thank you for bringing the word. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that next week I will also be unleashing Brian Milby upon you once again. It is graduate recognition service, and we always like Brian to be able to deliver sort of a, a final word to our students that are getting ready to, to graduate. Uh, but this morning, we have some amazing friends that are visiting with us once again. I, I saw back in the back, I, I said, is that Luke Shaver that's back there in the back? My eyes are getting old, Luke, so you'll have to forgive me. But I see that Luke and Jubilee, who are two international workers uh, that our church is, uh, we'd love to support you guys and what you're doing. And I see you've brought your precious gifts from the Lord uh, with you this morning, too. They're, if you haven't seen the new babies, please uh, come up and, and speak to Luke and Jubilee a little bit later. But uh, let's go to the Word, uh, go to the Father in prayer, and ask Him to prepare us to receive the Word. Lord, we thank You for such a time as this in the day that You have designated as a day of worship for You, a day set aside for You. That, Lord, when we come together as Your people, we are coming not to just feast on the Lord's Supper, but to feast on Your very Word. We pray, Lord, that it would be Your Holy Spirit that is feeding us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would use the, the text of your word to change and to shape and to transform our lives so that, Lord, we would resemble more of the Lord Jesus and that we would give glory to you for all that you have done on our behalf. Speak to us this day as you reveal yourself to us. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen. Well, as I was thinking about Luke walking in, mistaken identities happen all the time. We see someone and we think they, that we know who they are, only discover that person is not who we thought they were sometimes. Uh, one of my favorite stories is from one of Lisa's best friends. Her name is Julie, and if you know Julie at all, Julie is not someone that you would expect to be a musician. It's just not her thing. It's not in any way, shape, or form, nor would you expect her to be a singer. So one Sunday, this is a few years back, Julie was attending a rather large church in Murfreesboro at the time, and this anonymous woman came up to her and she said, thank you so much for what you did last Sunday. And Julie goes, I'm sorry, what? She said, for your singing, it was just so beautiful and it just touched my soul. And Julie realized at that moment that she had been mistaken for a woman who had sang in the service previously. Uh, she did kind of favor Julie at the time, but Julie had to tell her, I'm sorry, <laughs> that wasn't me. And the woman said, oh, I know, I know. It's never any of us. The, the, spirit, the spirit works through all of us. And Julie said, no, you, you don't understand. That wasn't me. And she said, oh, you were so modest. Thank you for, for giving your gifts or allowing the spirit to use your gifts to, to serve our church. And she walked away that point. Then I learned of a reverse case of mistaken identity. I recently watched an interview with Rowan Atkinson on a BBC show. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, most people know him as the slapstick character of Mr. Bean. And again, if you don't know who that is, let's just say he's one of those actors that have a very distinctive look to him. He was telling the story of picking up some car parts in an automotive store when there was a fellow there at the store who started staring at him. And being a celebrity, he was kind of used to these types of glares from fans because they were trying to figure out, is that really who I think it is? And then the man approached Atkinson and he said, 
Has anyone ever told you, you look like that guy, Mr. Bean, from the movies? And Atkinson said, well, actually, I am the actor that plays Mr. Bean. He said, oh, yeah, sure you are. <laughs> Having a little bit of fun with me now, are you? He said, no, actually, I am Mr. Bean. And he said, uh, no amount of logic at that point could convince the fellow that he was who he claimed to be at that point. And as the, the man left the store, he, he approached him once again. He said, it is uncanny how much you look like him. In fact, you could probably make a lot of money going to parties as a celebrity lookalike. It was obvious that despite the actual Mr. Bean sitting in front of this man, he was refusing to accept it. And then I saw another video of Joshua Bell, a, a world-class violinist who played in a subway station of all places. He did this incognito as an experiment by the Washington Post. Two days previously, he had just performed at a sold-out Boston theater where the tickets averaged $100 each. And in the subway, he played one of the most beautiful, intricate pieces of music ever written for a stringed instrument on a violin that was worth $3.5 million, right in the middle of the subway station. A few people gave him pause before moving on to their business, but no one seemed to take notice with the exception of a four-year-old boy who was utterly fascinated and would not let his mother drag him away from hearing him play. Imagine having the opportunity to see and hear one of the world's greatest musicians and missing it all because you didn't know who he was. Cases of mistaken identity happen all the time. And they're particularly noticeable to us when we realize we actually should have been aware of who we were dealing with in the moment. Our passage this morning in, in Matthew's gospel will emphasize such a point. And in our previous time together, if you will, please turn back to Matthew chapter 21, by the way. In our previous time together, we saw the Lord Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the first day of Holy Week. He was adored with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He entered the temple and he drove out the merchants seeking to make a profit from the pilgrims attending the temple for Passover. No one stopped him from doing this because everyone knew that what he was doing was right. He stated that Yahweh's house was a house for prayer, to meet with the one true God, and instead they had turned it into a den of robbers. And after that, Jesus returned to the home of his dear friends that lived in Bethany, just outside the city on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And that concluded Jesus' first day. Now, it would have been nice of Matthew to have told us exactly what happened on each day afterwards, such as Jesus did this on Monday, and this also happened on Thursday. But that is not his purposes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that every evening between Monday and Wednesday, he returned to Bethany. And on the following Thursday, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, Jesus celebrated Passover in the city with his disciples, and then he went to the garden on the Mount of Olives afterward to pray. And of course, we all know that he, where he spent the, the evenings of Friday and Saturday night after the cross. Jesus, as he was led, or Matthew here, as he was led by the Spirit, provides us with a summation of what transpired in those three days prior to celebrating the Passover. And it may well be the case that the extended teaching that happens in chapter 23 and 24 are also a, or excuse me, 24 and 25, are also a summary of what he taught in Bethany each evening of the week. 
But as a master storyteller, Matthew is weaving all of these events together where the reader can see clear, consistent themes throughout his teaching. The most prevalent one is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the son of David who came to save his people. The citizens of Jerusalem, especially the religious leaders, should have recognized this as the prophecies foretold. There should have already been an anticipation of his coming, an anticipation that the person who would save them would appear. Instead, as we shall see between verse 15 of this chapter through the end of it, there is increasing skepticism despite the evidence. After the fig tree incidents, there will be eight controversies here between Jesus and the religious leaders in the temple courts. Now, we're only going to have time to deal with three of those this morning. But before we get there, we have this curious scene with the fig tree. Now, let me clear up a little matter before we go any further here. If you read Mark's gospel, the curse of the fig tree is a two-day event. It would appear that Jesus curses the tree on Monday morning, and the disciples notice it's completely died and withered on Tuesday morning. However, the way it reads here in Matthew, the withering occurred instantly. Does this mean that there is a mistake in one of the gospel accounts? Is someone lying, or did they get their facts wrong? Now, most likely this event happened as Mark portrayed it. It's cursed on Monday, obviously dead on Tuesday. But remember, I said earlier that Matthew condenses his description of these three days. And once we understand it, we're going to see that this incident with the fig tree becomes thematic for all of what the author presents till the end of chapter 23. I don't think Matthew is trying to be loosey-goosey with his description here. The fig tree could have shown evidence of withering as soon as Jesus cursed it, and the disciples draw attention to its final deadness the following day. Now, while we're used to the effects of Roundup in our gardens, an entire tree dying and showing evidence that it is completely dead within 24 hours is highly unusual, even in our day. I don't think Matthew is trying to misrepresent the time, but rather he's emphasizing the event itself. What does this curse represent? Now, consider verses 18 through 22 here. Remember the previous day, Jesus was adored by the citizens of Jerusalem. They, they cheered and waved palm branches, welcoming Jesus into the city. They showed all the signs of being ready to receive their Messiah. Outwardly, they looked pretty good, but what was truly going on inside their hearts and minds? Did they truly believe that Jesus was the Savior? This fig tree is a picture of what was going on. At this point, the disciples are observing this. It's for their benefit. Jesus sees a fig tree a little way from the road. It produced leaves that made it recognizable as a fig tree. And with leaves, there should have been fruit on it. Jesus was hungry. Now, don't let that little detail slip by you. Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And as a man, he had physical needs just as we do, and he sympathizes and he knows our needs better than anyone else. But like any one of us, Jesus hungered. So he went to the tree to pick its fruit. It showed signs of bearing fruit, but it had no figs. So Jesus cursed the tree. It would be unable to bear fruit ever again because it was now dead. Jesus just provided a visual object lesson of what his disciples are about to see in Jerusalem 
within the religious leaders. They look good on the outside, but they are not bearing fruit. Therefore, they will be under a curse, a curse that will bring eternal death. You might think, well, how do you know that? That seems a bit of a stretch. But this is exactly what we see foretold in the prophet Isaiah. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 5. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. This is found on page 569. But allow me to, to read this to you. This is just the first seven verses of Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, and on a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a, vine, a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard have I, that I have not done it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they may, uh, that they, they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This same fruit-bearing imagery is also used of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 8 and also in chapter 24 to reveal what is truly going on in the hearts of man. Are they bearing appropriate fruit? There will be a fellow Jews here that will give lip service to Jesus. They look good on the outside, but are they? Are they gods? Do they truly belong to him? They will only demonstrate their faith by obeying Jesus, which is exactly where the conversation heads in the next three verses. The disciples want to know, well, how did the tree wither at once? What caused it to die so suddenly? And Jesus speaks of faith and that if one has faith, then amazing things can occur, like, like taking a mountain and throwing it into the sea. He's bold enough to say in verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this can be confusing to believers and non-believers alike. Here, Jesus does not quantify faith so much saying, say, you must have much faith or little faith. It's faith in general. So we understand faith in of itself is truly nothing. All faith is, is belief. Faith must have an object that it believes in. For example, I may tell you that, that this chair over here can bear my weight. But that belief is only true and meaningful if the chair can actually bear my weight. When it comes to Christian faith, we must ask, what do we believe about God? It's not just a general understanding about God as though he is one God among other gods. It is specific to what we believe about him. Is God the creator of the universe? Is he the almighty? Is he able to do all things? Can he save to the uttermost? Is he our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, as Psalm 46 teaches. If we understand them to be so, then our faith is made manifest and our corresponding actions and behavior that demonstrate 
we believe him to be so. We believe, even when the evidence at times seems to be against us in certain situations, because we know what is true about God. If you were to put a different colored cushion on this chair, I still would believe that that chair could hold me. Even if the situation changes, it's my belief in the chair. So this means if our faith is in God, then what we pray for must be in accordance with the desires of God. One of my favorite stories is about George Miller, the great man of prayer. And this comes from his diary. Let me read this to you. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thank God, and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second, and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. And his biographer wrote, 36 years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. He wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted. But after he died. That's faith. That truly is faith. This is a man who truly believed in who his merciful God was. Our problem is that we demonstrate our lack of understanding about who God is by giving up on prayer when God doesn't give us the answer that we want in a particular moment. Be encouraged. The Father has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He who did not spare his son, how will he not also give us all things? But even within this little discourse on faith and prayer here, don't lose sight of the greater picture here. The one who shows signs with no fruit is a hypocrite and under the curse. We're about to see examples of fruitless lives in the next three events of the chapter. Now, I'm going to be quick with these because I think you will see how they're all tied together if we move through them kind of quick here. They show the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who gave the appearance of righteousness but yet rejected their Messiah. And they come in the forms of questions throughout the end of the chapter. The first question here is posed by the chief priest demanding to know by whose authority Jesus was operating. Now, it may seem rude in the way that they asked their question, but it was customary that well-known rabbis were stopped and asked questions. In fact, we're going to see examples of this again in chapter 22, verse 16, verse 23, and again in verse 33. Many times the questions were posed for everyone's benefit to hear the answers. Some to the point out that this is a gifted rabbi and everybody should be listening to hear, to hear this person. And then sometimes the questions were to demonstrate this guy shouldn't be listened to at all. Now remember, in his time leading up to Jerusalem, Jesus had already been hounded by the Pharisees, the primary religious party outside of the city. 
And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, it was revealed they were so fed up with Jesus, they were seeking for ways to destroy him. But this question comes from the chief priest, who would have definitely been Sadducees. And it also comes from the elders, who were members of the Sanhedrin, the governing council of Jerusalem. Jesus has now entered into their turf of the city of Jerusalem and come into the temple. Previously in chapter 16, Jesus had warned of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, meaning both parties were wrong concerning what they understood about one's relationship to God and how it should be. They look good on the outside, right? But they're not bearing fruit. Therefore, they are under that curse. So they asked Jesus, verse 23, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Such a question implies a means to trip him up by his answer. They would find some way to ridicule Jesus, ridicule his response in some way. But by the way here, these things, as they put it, would include Jesus clearing the temple, his teaching of the people, and even the healing, the blind and the lame, if you look at verse 14. The answer to their question should have been obvious even to them. Already in one day, Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 69.9, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Based upon these three fulfillments in the first day, they should at least be seeking to know if Jesus was the Messiah. So the master teacher responds to their question with a question. He asked, where did the baptism of John come from? Was it from heaven or man? Now this is such a clever question because essentially Jesus is asking them, who is your authority chief priest and elders? Again, the answer should have been obvious that John was from God. He was the prophet that prepared the way. They should have responded to John's call to repentance. And it's clear from their deliberations that their ultimate authority was the fear of man, not God. What could possibly get them the most prestige among the population so that they could hold influence? So instead of giving a legitimate response, they refused to answer. So Jesus declares he will not answer their question. Or does he? Immediately, he launches into two parables. The question here of what do you think, in verse 28, is directed to these chief priests and elders. He tells them the story of a man who had two sons that needed to work in the field. The first initially refused to obey his father, but he repented and then obeyed his dad. The second said he would obey, but when it came to it, he never made his way to the field. Does the second son not seem like the fig tree that gave signs of bearing fruit, but had no fruit? What is amazing is that he gets the chief priest to admit who is the more righteous party. It is the first son who showed fruit. They are condemned by their own words. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And then what Jesus states next is just absolutely scandalous in their eyes. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Why? 
not because they're tax collectors or prostitutes, but because they repented. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe them, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. They should have recognized John's authority, believed in him, and demonstrated their repentance by being baptized like the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. But they did not. And then Jesus closes with another parable. To me, it's the most powerful in the New Testament. Note the connections to what we've seen so far. There's a master who has his own vineyard. He's done everything for it. Like we read in Isaiah chapter 5, he even built a watchtower in it. They get the benefit, this tenants here that he's leasing it to, they get the benefit of leading, living on the land. They get to, to share in the crops. All the master wants in return is a portion of the fruit. Now look at The master is looking for fruit. He sent servants to collect it. And rather than hand it over, the tenants beat the servants. The servants in this case represent prophets like John the Baptist. The tenants refuse to acquiesce to the master. So this time, the master sends his son. Surely they will respect the authority of his son. And it must have been the master's only son, since the tenants think they could take the inheritance once he was dead. The tenants thought, well, if we kill the son, then we can take his inheritance for ourselves. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And this is precisely what the religious leaders will do to Jesus at the end of this week. Instead of welcoming him as the son of God, the rightful heir to the throne of David, they will take him out of the city to Golgotha and crucify him until he's dead. And again, just like the previous parable, Jesus gets them to admit what is just. He asks, verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And like David confronted by the prophet Nathan, the story elicits an extreme and emotional reaction to the injustice. Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Kind of see of Jesus smiling at this point, kind of going, mm-hmm. Just like our Lord predicted in verse 31, prostitutes and tax collectors will become the new tenants because they believed and they obeyed. So to get these religious leaders to think rightly, Jesus appeals to the Bible. And his choice of verse is telling because they come from Psalm 118. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This verse comes from the same psalm as the one the people shouted when he entered into the city, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna, or save us, to the son of David. The answer should be right in front of their eyes. It should be marvelous. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of man, David's Lord, the word made flesh is sitting right in front of them. And not to be flippant, but it's one of those moments of... You're a dead ringer for that Mr. Bean fellow. <laughs> Who was before them should have been obvious. And the gentle and loving Jesus offers them a warning. Like the fig tree, the curse is coming. Verse 43, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When anyone falls on it, it will crush him. This, of course, is the cornerstone in verse 42. In Peter's first letter, he uses the same set of verses with a play on words. Those who come to Jesus become spiritual stones on which he builds his dynasty. So he writes in 1 Peter 2, 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you reject Jesus, then the judgment is upon you. Not surprisingly, in their foolish pride, they not only reject Jesus as Messiah, but they begin to have their own identity crisis here. To me, these words are almost comical here. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. You think? They couldn't see themselves as the second son of verse 30. They couldn't see themselves as the murderous tenants. They couldn't see themselves dashed by the rock. Despite the fact that Jesus said, tax collectors and prostitutes go before you into the kingdom. And in verse 33, that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another. Man, if the Lord Jesus had said that to me, I would have been trembling and begging, what must I do to be saved? And yet, we still see that the favor of the people meant more to them than the favor of the king of kings. And although they were seeking to arrest him, verse 46, they feared the crowds because they, meaning the crowds, held him to be a prophet. It's shocking, isn't it? These religious leaders who, who claim to know the word of God cannot recognize the identity of the one who is before them. They cannot see the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're unable to recognize their salvation. And most likely, it's failure to see themselves aright. They probably don't think they need to be saved from anything. And this becomes the challenge for those of us in this room. We always, whenever we read passages like this in the scriptures, we always say, yeah, Jesus, go get those Pharisees. Go get those legalists. Rarely do we see ourselves as the ones that Jesus is describing. Friends, my greatest concern is that you do not see your need to be saved. You may know about Jesus, but do you truly know him? You can answer all the right questions in Sunday school. You have your logical and, and biblical arguments all laid out. You download the podcast and you listen to him all the time. But do you really know his mercy and his grace? Perhaps you even put a gloss on your life. You're, you're masking on the outside what is really going on inside of you. You can look religious. You can quote verses. You, you can wear snazzy clothes and function well in society. You're, you're even good at pointing at other people's flaws. But Jesus knows what is in the heart of every man and woman. He knows the reality. He knows if you have made him your Lord or not. And he warns the self-righteous, don't reject the cornerstone. Fall on it and beg for mercy. Be shattered about your own understanding of yourself and put your faith in the only one that can save you. But also, don't miss this beautiful part here. 
Jesus, who never told a lie, said that the tax collectors and prostitutes get into the kingdom if they believe and repent. Those classifications of people considered the, the greatest outcast in Jewish society. And he says, they get in. I don't care how bad, how bad you think you are, how despicable you think you are. Whether you think you've gone down a road of, of self-deception here and you think you can never turn back. I don't care if you think you're the biggest liar on the face of the planet or if you've done gross, immoral, and impure things. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has died for such a sinner. Even tax collectors and prostitutes get into his kingdom, not on anything that they have done, but on what he has done. He can declare them clean because he is king. He is the Messiah, and his rule goes. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I pray. Oh, I pray for the people that you have gathered together in this room. I pray, Lord, that we have not deceived ourselves that we think that being a Christian has something to do with our external actions, that we think it has something to do with the way we're dressed, that we think it has something to do with the arguments we're able to do or how many Bible verses we learn. But I pray that we know, Lord, that, that faith can only come by believing what Christ has done on our behalf, that it is only through the Spirit of God coming into us and regenerating us and opening our eyes to see the truth of what we are, that we are despicable, vile sinners who are worthy of judgment, but yet you have made a way, a rescue for us to be able to come to you and stand before you in the righteousness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would undo each and every one of us this morning so that we can see this truth. And know that we should lean on nothing else but accept Jesus Christ and what he has done. Lord, I pray that that would be manifest in us and shown to be real inside of us. That fruit would be produced in our own souls, Lord, in our own lives. That we believe Jesus is the king. That he is our sovereign Lord. What he says goes. And that his glory must be promoted here in Huntsville and around the world. That Jesus Christ will rule no matter what. And that, Lord, that would be a sense of consolation to us. Even when we're going through the darkest of times, even when we're suffering, even when we feel persecuted, that we wouldn't fall back on the things of the past, but it would only strengthen our faith in what Christ has done on our behalf all the more. So Lord, let us proclaim that Jesus Christ reigns. Let us do so in the power of your Holy Spirit through the accomplished work of our Savior. Amen.